What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. How did I get in this situation? Because I'm not like this. And they make it feel like it's your fault. They have a way of doing that. No matter what it is, it was always your fault. I found some people that have had trauma in their life. So we understand the need for safety. And then for the first time, being able to explore any want and desire fantasy or whatever together, because it's that safe space and that true adult play where there isn't that editor. Those are the voices of Nadia North and Seth S., two awesome people, both of whom endured sexual assault and, in Nadia's case, other types of violence. Today, you will hear some details about the abuses they endured. As always, if this is difficult for you to hear at any point, please take care of yourself. One note before we dive in. If I were reporting these stories for a news publication, I would be required to say things like allegedly assaulted or reported being raped. I am not going to use those terms today because I want to be very clear that I believe Nadia and Seth. They volunteered to share their stories with me on behalf of all of you because they deeply want to help others. They both told me on their own that if anyone finds hope or strength in their words, the courage and vulnerability it takes for them to speak openly is well worth it. The stories you will hear today are their truths. First, Nadia. Nadia North grew up in northern Wisconsin where she always felt a little different. A self-described late bloomer sexually, she said she didn't learn much about sex at all, and she realized early on that she was bi-curious. She also saved herself, meaning sex, for her first marriage. Eventually, life led Nadia to California after she connected with famed porn star, director, and producer Peter North. You know, I was actually raising money for his nutrition company. We ended up talking on the phone and, you know, he was asking me to go out to California and I kept saying no, and then finally went and it just went from there. Nadia never anticipated entering the adult film industry, but not long after they started dating and working together, Peter invited her in. I went ahead, I agreed to it. Kind of made me feel guilty in a way because he was like, you know, why is it okay for me to do it and not you? So I kind of got guilted into it a little bit. Once she started the work, she found it fun and fulfilling. It seems to me that she really had a knack for it. Honestly, I was more relaxed than I thought I would be. So on set, it was actually, you know, it was pretty nice. I got to pick out who I worked with, which is always a good thing. And everybody was so chill. Everybody I worked with was amazing. That's what makes it. It's just a nice vibe. It was very relaxing. Like the behind the scenes were always funny. It was always a lot of laughter. 
soon, Nadia was directing and producing porn as well. And immediately, she set a goal of making sure that female performers were respected and not degraded. Like, I really wanted them to shine and look beautiful. I didn't want anything all over the face. I just, you know, I made sure their makeup was pretty. I didn't put them in degrading positions. And it was really nice to write out scripts that were fun. And for couples, I did like the Faithfully Unfaithful series. So that was for couples. And it was just, it's stuff like that, that it just made it so fun and liberating. Like many people who have been in a relationship with someone who turns out to be controlling, Peter turned on the charm at first a phenomenon known as love bombing, where you are showered with excessive affection, admiration, and attention, not from a sincere place, but as a tactic. Psychologists who work with abuse victims consider it a strategy for luring someone in to make them dependent on you. A few years ago, I interviewed Christina Hogue, a former longtime journalist for the Miami Herald and Associated Press. She talked about her own experience in an abusive relationship. Here she's recalling her own experience being love-bombed. Well, the problem is that there are, are clear red flags to, to these uh, relationships, but they don't appear as warning signs or red flags. So the first thing is that the abuser will typically come on really strong. They are completely obsessed with you. They are infatuated. They tell you they've never been in love uh, like this before. They've never met someone like you. That doesn't seem like a warning sign or a red flag at all. It's almost like too good to be true, like a movie romance, like it's just some Prince Charming. And of course, this is immensely flattering. And I just fell, you know, I was just like bowled over by it. I was, I mean, literally, as they say, swept off your feet. And it's absolutely part of the sort of grooming process that the abuser does. These are very calculated moves. The start of Nadia's relationship with Peter fits that bill. He was very charming. He was very poised, well-mannered, would open doors, pull out your seat. He dressed very nice. He seemed so perfect. Compliments and um, like little things, like little gifts, not anything I'm saying like, you know, expensive, but it's just little things to show that they care. And then it just changes. When did you notice a change? Once I found out about the company and things when the money wasn't as good on his side, he was a little more stressed out. But once the physical abuse started happening, he just snapped. And then he would say he was sorry, or I would get to say I had to go speak in Denver and do a conference there for Exotica. I got there, there was flowers in my room and a teddy bear saying he was sorry for abusing me. And then slowly, like, you know, he wasn't sorry anymore. And they're so charming, though. They just have this way of making it really, really good when, the, when you're good, if that makes sense. I mean, like the highs are so high. You almost forget that that person can be so evil. And it happens so quick. I wouldn't even know it's coming. Like he would hit me from behind and just launch me. And I could kind of tell because he would get really quiet. You know, and I would just know, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to leave the room or something. Next thing you know, I'm going flying across the room. You know, so you just, you forget when they're so charming and 
you know, then all of a sudden we go on this trip to like Bora Bora and I'm like, oh, this is great. During that trip, he attacked her again. Through all of this, Nadia felt increasingly alone. You know, nobody knew. When I went to work and I was directing and producing, everybody always saw me as this very powerful girl and always had everything put together and I made sure everybody felt great and I was always on top of everything. I didn't want anybody to feel sorry for me and I didn't want it to come out, I guess. I thought I'd lose respect from my crew and from the entertainers. So I just didn't want to say anything. My camera guy noticed because I kept shaking my hand out and holding my side because he broke my ribs. So it's like, they were like, are you okay, Nadia? I'm like, yeah, I'm great. Like many abusers, Peter made Nadia think the abuse was her fault. So she felt ashamed. She was also scared to leave, which is common for people enduring physical violence. If the abuser catches or finds you, things could get even worse. Eventually, Nadia knew she had to do something. Finally, it was just enough, and I had to call the police. I mean, it, it was really bad. I mean, literally, he almost killed me. The police came and took him away, but Nadia's relief was temporary. You know, and I never expected them to let him out right away. He did his bail or bond or whatever you call it for the 50000 and then it was like some kind of scary movie. I'm in the shower. And I look up and he's just standing in our master bathroom. I mean, it was just like my heart just sunk. It was like the most sickening feeling. And he's like, I thought we weren't going to involve the police. And just shaking his head. Very calm voice. I'm just like, oh my goodness, I'm in so much trouble. And then he beat me up really, really bad, you know, less than 10 days later. And I never got closure because after that, you know, I got the restraining order, obviously. And then next thing you know, we're going through this divorce and he's still not signing the papers, but we're doing the separation and it's, it's still ongoing. This control he still has that he's trying to do, but he literally just took everything and it's still going on. You know, I was very disappointed um, with the way that the police handled it. I almost had to be my own advocate for a while. I really had to put all the files together and the dates. And then the DA reopened the cases because they weren't getting the information from the police. I mean, it was just a mess. It's because of who he is in the money, in the area. And it's unfortunate. And I'm thinking, you guys have tape recordings. You know, there was another tape recording that was transcribed and the police were called out right after that. And he's ripping the screens off the windows and banging on the door. And then he calls the police and the police are like, he seems calm. I'm like, you guys forget he's an actor. He's an actor. It's just so ridiculous. Nadia did not give up. The abuse continued. And at one point, she secretly recorded his voice while hiding under a bed. I've heard the recording, and it is beyond eerie. In it, he admits to almost killing her in this casual, sing-song way, then he says that he is high on life and always wanted to make her happy. Mixed in there is a bit of an apology. Finally, after more of Nadia's efforts, Peter North was taken away, seemingly for good. It took going to the police 
and him getting arrested again. Technically, that was his third time getting arrested. There was no coming back from that one. So I got the restraining order. I mean, he still broke it, obviously, the restraining order. And I still got, you know, a few more things that happened, obviously, after that, like the sexual assault and things like that. Sexual assault meaning rape. I knew that that was the right thing to do. And I had some friends in the industry that I confided in. And I went from there. Things are still ongoing right now. Like literally, we just had court um, and it's, we have another date coming up in, I think, like 28 days or 29 days. Meanwhile, he was refusing to sign papers for a fair divorce. It's so interesting and I think sad that you have to get someone to sign divorce papers when they abuse you. Do you think the laws need to change so that if somebody is abusive, they don't have to sign? Like, you should just have your freedom. Yeah, that would be nice. I think the hardest part is, is I had to keep going back for the domestic violence and continuing everything at like every 30 days or so. But then he started pleading the fifth because he had felony charges pending. And of course it was racking up my lawyer bills, but then he drained all of our accounts when he got out of jail. So I'm sitting there going, how am I going to afford a lawyer when I don't have any money? Cause he took it all. You know what I mean? So it's this like, cycle and there just needs to be more help. I know that like the lowest point was I really had nowhere to go and I actually called a shelter and they were full. And that was like my lowest, lowest point. As low as those times were and as difficult as her day-to-day life became, Nadia did find moments of respite by engaging in one of her favorite hobbies. So I love cars. I'm a total tomboy and I ride motorcycles and, and I used to go with my car group, you know, on the weekends when I could early, early in the morning, he was totally fine with that. Cause he never got up early. You know, he's like, just go ahead. But it, I couldn't go anywhere else unless it benefited him. Now that Nadia is physically away from her abuser, thank goodness, she manages PTSD, which can make you feel as though the threat never left or keeps returning. And a little helps her feel as safe as her service dog. Her name is Moose. (laughs) She's adorable. But I do, I get um, real shaky and being out in public kind of makes me anxious. I mean, I was really, really bad for a while because, I mean, he opened up my car door when I had the restraining order and just started punching me in a parking lot. So, I mean, I literally would take my dog everywhere. I still do. So, you know, I have like a SUV, so just throw her in there and she loves it. But it makes me feel safe and calm. Nadia also leans heavily on loved ones. I have really good family. So I talk to my family and they're very supportive. And my two kids are older, so, you know, that helps. And they love me, and I love them, and we've, we've always been close. So I talk to them constantly. If you relate to Nadia's experience, she wants you to know that you are not alone and that there is reason to hope, to carry on, to keep trying. I hope they come forward and, you know, talk. I don't know how to explain it, but I... 
I just want people to feel like they can come out and talk, you know, share their stories. Cause I just felt like I had nowhere to go. And I felt like nobody was going to ever believe me. He was too powerful. I'm still going through it. Yes. But I'm moving forward. I'm happier and it's, it's doable. And you just need to get out because these guys won't stop or women, you know, it goes both ways, but you know, they won't, it just gets worse. It's a cycle. When the stress of it all gets to her now, Nadia finds comfort and pleasure in belly dancing and cooking. So that's actually my release. Unfortunately, he kind of messed up my neck. So I had surgery not too long ago for a spinal with that. But at least with belly, I can, you know, isolate. It's so calming and it's relaxing. It keeps you in shape. So that's kind of my go-to. And I love to cook. So like meal prepping relaxes me. I just turn on my YouTube and I just like listen to music or watch videos and meal prep. And that's like my go-to too. The day we spoke, she was planning to make a savory dish. Actually, I'm going to make chicken with um, feta and stuffed uh, spinach in there. And you put Dijon mustard on there with a little bit of dill. It is so good. I just like to keep busy. It keeps my mind off of things too. I mean, I do have my days when, you know, I'm a little down, but I love to take my dog for a walk. She's a goofball. And, um, you know, my daughter has horses, so that helps. As for the upcoming trial, Nadia told me that she hopes Peter is held accountable. Because he's so much about his reputation. That's everything to him. And he really thinks he's above the law. So I just I want him to be held accountable. And I want all this information to come out when people see everything. Because obviously I can't say what's happening with the trial. But there's a lot of audio in, you know, video in it's bad. So I want that out so that people can see he is a monster. Nadia told me she thinks that some abusers can learn and grow and change, and they should have those resources and supports while still being held accountable. But she does not consider Peter one of those people. She hopes that she can help keep other women safe by sharing her truth and the truth about him. Speaking of which, looking back, Nadia wishes that she had confided in friends sooner. Yeah, honestly, I I wish I would have just opened up to my friends more because they were so supportive. And I wish I would have not doubted that, I guess. Not like I doubted it, but they were just like, why didn't you tell me? And I think that people who go through it forget how much our friends love us. You know, so we just need to kind of open up to them because they do. They want to give you a hug. They want to be there for you. They're not going to look at you and be like, what is wrong with you? That's not what they're going to do. Because in the back of your head, you're thinking that's what they're going to do. See, because you're ashamed. That's one reason seeking support is so important. There are groups out there that help you. You know, just talk to your family, talk to a social worker. And if you're scared of leaving, always have an emergency bag. Just have one set of clothes in there, you know, a little bit of money, like just something so that you can grab and go. Nadia still has more surgeries she needs to physically heal for her back, scapula, part of her chest and her spine. But she is healing, she said, bit by bit, in all ways. If you would like to support Nadia in some way, 
she suggested reaching out. You can drop her a note through Twitter or send her an email. I love getting those. It makes me feel good. And I I have had a lot of men and women reach out to me and say, we're so proud of you or tell me about their stories. And I love reading those. Nadia also pointed out how much stigma comes along with being an adult entertainer or sex worker and how that has impacted the ways she's been treated by authorities. For example, she was told that at the trial, she might be portrayed as someone who simply likes rough sex versus what actually happened, being brutalized and raped. She was abused by one man and had positive experiences in the adult film industry. If you are managing trauma or just feeling completely stressed out lately, sexual pleasure might be just the thing to help. But in some cases, it can be daunting. Many survivors find that sex toys and solo play provide a way to explore their body and experience orgasmic bliss and comfort without feeling as though they may be triggered by a particular act or sensation. You are in control, and you can choose toys that don't replicate particular body parts if that's helpful. It's just you, your body, and your pleasure, and whatever feelings come up that you can tend to. One of my favorite soothing sex accessories from the pleasure chest is the Dame Intimate Touch Palm Kit. It comes with a soft yet strong vibrator with a very neutral shape a natural aloe-based lubricant, and a pH-balanced arousal serum. Find that and explore fun holiday specials at thepleasurechest.com. Again, that's thepleasurechest at thepleasurechest.com. Now the story of Seth S., Seth is further along in his healing journey, and the abuse he endured happened early in life. I'm adopted, and I'm the oldest, and I grew up in a beach community. Going to the beach all summer with the bubbled nose, zinc oxide, you know, we didn't have effective sunscreen. I'm dyslexic, so school was not great for me, ironically. And going back to grad school, I've gotten straight A's, so it's... I think my first grade teacher's probably rolling over in a grave. So before the event, I was the typical, you know, toe-headed surfing kid. Was out on the actual Big Wednesday, which was in July. I think I was almost seven years old, so it was pretty crazy for a little kid to be out in 15-foot waves. But I was a total, total swimmer kid. Seth also identifies as highly sensitive something he didn't have the language for back then. And he was raised by people he described as very intellectual and Spock-like. So some of these traumas hit a lot harder because of who I am. And then hearing foo-foo feelings and that they don't really matter. I think I was told I was, I, I love you once in my entire childhood. And telling me to be less sensitive is like telling me not to breathe. That also set up some of the vulnerability and susceptibility to predation. Being highly sensitive, or an HSP, 
a term coined by psychologist Elaine Aaron, means you display increased emotional sensitivity, stronger reactivity to stimuli, both internally and externally, things like pain, light, hunger, and noise, and you have a deeply complex inner life. It comes with a lot of positives, but especially as a boy, having learned that those quote-unquote foo-foo feelings are a weakness for a guy, it was easy for Seth to feel alien to those around him. So when he received attention from another boy, someone he looked up to, it felt really good at first. I was adopted into middle-upper-class family in a very idyllic neighborhood where really kids were running around unsupervised like feral children in the streets. So I was seven years old, and we were feral children skateboarding out in the street. I was big on the older kids, the older, the older boys, because my dad was very intellectual and didn't, wasn't really around. He worked six days a week and really didn't show up to sports or anything else until it was intellectually interesting for him. So it was high school football before he actually came in person. So I was always looking for a father figure or father figures or older boys or older male. And there are a whole bunch of older kids in that whole kind of clique of skateboarding. So one of the older skateboarder kids that was the older brother or somebody that I knew asked me to come into his house and we went in the closet. I won't say coerced, but I was seven. I didn't know anything and had me perform oral on him. And then that happened again another day. And I believe a third time where I started to feel like, you know, this isn't right. I'm being used. I'm being, I'm seven. So the language isn't really there. Right. And that's a lot of the work in therapy that I did is, connecting language, especially since I'm not language-based in my thinking, connecting that back so I can make sense of it as an adult. So I recognize that that was an adult term because it didn't exist in my head then, was coercive and manipulative. And flashing forward, I took that energy I experienced as that predatory kind of evil nature as being male sexuality, which means in my head somewhere, I equated that I could do that to somebody, that I could be a predator too, just by the nature of being male and the sexual feelings I had. As a result of those mixed messages he received, Seth told me he grew hypervigilant about his sexuality into his teens and early adulthood. If he asserted himself in some way sexually, he feared that it would awaken that predatory nature he had perceived the one he now knows isn't inherent in any gender. And it took decades later of dating what turned out to be really submissive females that wanted assertiveness and even some consensual aggression to realize that that's not a bad thing. That's actually a great thing when it's welcomed and shared. I'm not a dominator, dominate, whatever you call the male dominatrix. But I, I certainly have grown to enjoy it when it's welcomed and realize I was hypervigilant for my entire sexuality. And because at seven, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know that that was even sex or what it was. I still have some issues around receiving oral because I can flash back into those moments and that kind of kills the mood. That whole sense of feeling that by my nature, that inherent in me, I had this chunk of coal that was evil that could influence me to do predatory things made me super hyper consensual. 
that I would check on like every moment. If I'm obviously not very assertive, especially down the sexual route, and just super worried that I'm going to cross the line at every moment. He was nearing age 30 when he started to realize that he could enjoy being assertive during sex without fear of something horrible happening. In the right context, doing so with an inclined partner could even help heal some of his wounds. I hear that from many survivors, by the way. Turning the thing you fear or were traumatized through into something safe, intimate, and pleasure, in some cases, really helps. I realize as long as I know I have consent and I know the person enjoys it, but you have a safe word set up just in case. Before that. I would often provide oral to, to a woman rather than have full sex because I didn't want the emotional ramifications because it is different. In addition to partners who helped create those safe spaces for dominant submissive play, Seth points to therapy he sought out as hugely healing. I spent a lot of my life feeling like I was shit on someone's shoe and I better desperately hold on to the shoe because it's better to be on the shoe than to be isolated. Through therapy and, and help, I realized I'm not shit on someone's shoe and that's probably not a healthy approach. And the self-loathing certainly doesn't help. Still, he hasn't found it easy to trust other men. I have male friends now and I have had male friends and we have tend to be sensitive people that can have deeper conversations. But my brain trust and my trust circle has always been females because it just seemed safer. Seth feels that we should all learn ways to protect ourselves from harm. At the same time, and super importantly, it's never our fault when someone crosses a line or worse. Your spidey senses can be good, but there will always be a predator that's better. So we need to be self-protective, but the self-blame and loathing shouldn't come with it. Now he knows to his core that the abuse he endured was not his fault. No one had even taught him about sexuality or boundaries or consent or what to do if the worst should happen. I didn't earn that. I didn't even know what sex was. I didn't have a clue how to protect myself. Nobody talked about it. It was always, if it was even mentioned by seven, it was some guy in a van that was going to pick me up hitchhiking up the hill. When Seth talks about sexuality now, his words ring of freedom, encouragement, and self-acceptance. I believe sexuality penetrates everything. I, I think when we make friends, the sexual center of the brain is engaged. I think when we're attracted to anything, our sexual center of the brain is engaged. And we're taught even today that it's in a box. It's a special place that it's only for when you bring it off the shelf that sexuality is private, that it's only this slice of life when, I hate to break it to everybody, it's all the time, every time, it's one of the most primary drivers in our life. And when you don't accept that that's present, it's what makes predators because you sexualize inappropriate things. It's also what makes a lot of repression, a lot of separation from self. And it doesn't mean you run around being a perv, and I don't like that word, but let your inner freak flag fly, right? I've had friends that feel guilty for fantasies and thoughts they have and are arguing with their own brain. That's free playland. Don't feel guilty about any of that shit. If you give it air and say it out loud, it doesn't hold power over you anymore. It's like holding it, someone's head under the water. 
And when you have separation and traumas and they're under the water and you're packaging them up and you're forcing them below the surface, they fight for air and you don't have control when they show up and you act out. When difficult feelings crop up, which is especially the case, he said, when a highly sensitive person is triggered by PTSD, you can recall what happened all too vividly. He has learned to feel those feelings, to let them out rather than try to push them down. It will get better. You'll get to a place where the feelings will come and you say, oh, I recognize you. And instead of immediately using your rational mind to try to suppress and keep the feelings from happening, you go, cool, you can breathe, have your space. Doesn't mean I'm going to do anything about you, but you're free to have your space. But I'm a, I'm a grown-ass man and, or a grown-ass woman, and I get to make choices about that. Just don't make them your master. They get their air, they get their space. And that's just terrifying for most of us post-trauma. The feelings aren't the evil part. It's what we're doing to ourselves that's the evil part. And you don't need to feel guilty about masturbation or fantasies or going crazy in your head. And do not throw judgment at your own mind. That's just not cool. He's also found solace in community with people who relate to what he has gone through and want to explore sexually. I found some people that have had trauma in their life so we understand the need for safety and then for the first time being able to explore any want and desire fantasy or whatever together because it's that safe space and that true adult play where there isn't that editor we can't have the sexual thoughts that's part of the problem we were responsible for it. bullshit sex is adult play it's meant to be a fully immersive experience and fun Everyone deserves to feel safe, especially in their most vulnerable state, which is often sexuality. Having a loving partner with common history has helped Seth too. I love that he shared that because it debunks this myth that we hear so often where you have to be healed in order to find love or really be loved, like fully love yourself before someone can love you too. There's nuance there. And we aren't always ready. But sometimes a relationship is a healer. Love is healing. And we don't have to earn that. The common history helped that out a lot. We both had similar resistance to being free. And then kind of having that playmate to be free with. And I've grown to accept that I, I'm not going to be a perpetrator. If I ever cross that line, it would devastate me. Seth has also grown to embrace his sensitivity and the benefits and individuality that brings in all aspects of his life, including his sexuality and relationships. When your whole life is this intense, immersive experience, tend to have the eyes of the child and everything's new and shiny, even when you're older. I view that as a great weakness of vulnerability, of sensitivity, and it's my greatest strength. It's what gives me my intuition. And the big mistake a lot of us have is thinking that we all come from the same mixed stuff, the same Play-Doh, the same clay. No. As Einstein said, well, I'm not all going to understand the calculus. It doesn't make you less than. It just makes you different. The big moment for me where I don't have negative self-talk anymore was if I treated my friends, even acquaintance, the way I treated myself, that would be totally unacceptable behavior in my life. And that was the, the off-the-cliff moment. 
I'd like to wrap up today with a simple grounding exercise from With Pleasure, the book I co-wrote with sex therapist Jamila M. Dawson. Grounding exercises are a simple way to bring us back to the present anytime we feel activated by trauma or if we're just feeling stressed, anxious, fill in the blank. If you're driving, you might want to save this for a time when you are not, or you can think about it carefully, keep your eyes on the road. If you are in a space where you can sit in a comfortable position, close your eyes if you wish, or just kind of zone out on a spot in front of you. Picture the face or imagine the voice of someone you love. Imagine taking in all the encouragement and support you see in their eyes or hear in their words. Create a mental picture of it. Is it a sound, a glow, a color, an object? Imagine really bringing this image closer to yourself. If you'd like more exercises or resources for managing trauma, and you want to embrace your sexuality and pleasure at the same time, check out our book, With Pleasure, Managing Trauma Triggers for More Vibrant Sex and Relationships. If you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I would love to hear from you with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or in the iTunes store. You can also support the show by joining my Patreon community. I share bonus content and you can get all kinds of fun and interesting clips that you won't hear in the episodes for as little as two or five dollars a month. Thank you so much for listening and keep embracing those girl boners. 